Hi, welcome to Your Grit Story, where we chat with entrepreneurs, innovators, and leaders who live by passion and perseverance to make the future a reality. Let's be inspired by the stories as you create Your Grit Story. All right, we are back on our next episode of Your Grit Story podcast. This is part of the exciting NOC alumni series where we revisit those who went through the program and went on to chase their passion, right, to make an impact through starting up and also investing in other startups. And today we are super excited to have a veteran with us. Hi, Mohan. Welcome to the show. Hey, Eric. Thanks for having me. <laughs> a joy to have you join us today. I'm super excited. For listeners, if you are an entrepreneur, if you are a founder, I'm sure you are familiar with E27 as a go-to platform for everything about the startup and tech ecosystem. And today we have Mohan, the co-founder and CEO of E27 with us to share about startup and investing landscape today. So Mohan, I know... You know, people in the startup world know you, but we really love you to share a little bit more about yourself so our listeners can get to know you more. On to you, Mohan. Yeah, so thanks a lot again, Eric, for having... It took us a while to, to get this going, but really glad that we yes. managed to do it, right? I've been in the tech ecosystem for a long time now. Actually, I really started in tech when I was 14, 15. So actually, my so-called tech journey started in high school with, mm. you know, building computers, programming chess algorithms, those kind of things, right? And always a geek at heart from a young age, but was lucky to spend time in Dilligan Valley of the NOC program. Came back and then you know, I'll share a bit more about how the E27 journey started, but also started getting actively involved in the venture and the mm-hmm. angel scene, right? When I share my story with, with a lot of friends and people, right? Like startup was never something I planned to get into or start or, or be involved with. I always thought I would join government or join a big corporate, you know, those, those kind of things, right? like, like Microsoft, Oracle, or the list of companies I wanted to be part of. But NOC totally changed that, that perception for me and opened up that entire doorway. Like, so really good to, really glad and privileged to be able to, to be in this space. Yeah, and, and that's a great reason for you to be part of this series, to share more about the program that really changed your mindset from a geek, if mm-hmm. I could call, right? To a person that's interested in whole tech, startup innovation and disruptive space, right? So let's dive deep into that whole NUS Overseas College program. Could you share with our audience more about this program? When was it? Yes. And how it helped you? And when was the turning point really? Yeah. So I went in July 06 to July 07. And for context, this was just before, you know, the financial crisis. So basically it was like the boom cycle, right? Everything was amazing. It was very... A large reason why I signed up for the program in the first place was because when I was 16 in my O-level year, my physics teacher organized a trip to the US. And a large part of the trip was visiting Stanford, you know, checking out like Intel and Microsoft's office and visiting the Bay Area and Silicon Valley. So for me, going back to the Valley was like a plan all along and NOC kind of enabled that, right? But it was always with that mindset of joining big companies, like I mentioned earlier. The startup part was something that I was like, okay, I'll explore that. And I was very lucky because the company I joined, I was actually employing of one. You know, like before I went to the NOC bootcamp, or before you go, right? Like people were looking at the address because all of us had to share our address and then the seniors would give us advice or where to stay. And then everyone was like, hey, this is not an office, this is a house. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, crap, what, what did I sign up for, right? And, and little did I know, right? A week before I landed, the founder had just raised like a seed round. And then our office was actually in the VC's basement, right? And really, I was very lucky. I, I look back, right? I really got that full chance uh, to get the super early stage experience, which I feel a lot of my batchmates and subsequently a lot of people I talked to did not have, like, right? 
again, pros and cons, I would have employee number one, so in a way, I'm all alone. <laughs> learn how to operate a coffee machine. We would practically learn how to do everything from scratch, right? But that also gave me the opportunity to just basically do anything and everything, right? Wow. Yeah, I think that's the, really the fun part of being a startup and being the first five employees really doing things from scratch. Really a bit of self-discovery yeah. as well, like what you can really, really do and what you're capable of. And you mentioned just something very interesting mm-hmm. on the NOC bootcamp and <laughs> that really kind of shocked me. Like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. we had this activity where everybody kind of come together, first time in each other, that we are all flying to a same place kind of thing, the Bay Area. That was a really yeah. very interesting event. Could you share one, another event or activity that is still very close to your hearts during the one year stints in... Uh, Bay Area. Oh, wow. Okay. Actually, there, were, like, I, there are so many, you know, but like, let me pick a couple, okay? Like, I think the one life-changing experience I had is this, uh, as much as it might, it might seem hard to believe, right? Like, pre-NOC, right? I, I really couldn't talk to people. Or I was a lot more introverted, shy, just afraid to open up. I'll be the kind of uh, person, right? Like, if I went for, I don't know, a wedding or a family function, right? I'll go grab a Coke can, find the quarters corner, sit down and just not talk to anybody and just wait for the night to pass it. I think that was the level of fear that I had with respect to talking to people in general. Uh, so the big thing that NOC changed was that the seniors would actually bring us out for events. And then my own buddy, right, who was my senior, right, you know, he would, I don't know whether he was joking or real now, but, but he's like, okay, we don't collect any name cards by tonight. I'm not driving you back and you got to figure your way. Right? So this kind of like, you know, tricks and hacks in life, right, to help you do things that you're not comfortable with is something I really learned about in, in NOC. Right. And also required you to just try and then, you know, like a similar example would be like, I wanted to go to New York for a conference with my boss. And my boss was like, hey, there's no way you're going on. We take prices about $3,000. And my hack was that I emailed the organizer, got his email online, told him that, oh, I'm on this program. I work on a startup. I, I really think I can volunteer and help with the event and provide a fresh perspective. I'm from Singapore, whatever, right? And he replied, say, okay, kind of, I'll give you a volunteer pass. And then when I went there, he actually gave me the VIP pass instead, which was a higher pass than my old boss. Right? And then it gave me all sorts of access. So a, a lot of it was like the whole mindset of like, you don't try, you don't know. Just ask, right? There's really no, no boss, right? And then the last part was this entire mindset of cultural shift around startups. So like you grow up thinking that, oh, small is limited. Uh, maybe you need big companies to effect change, right? And I think NOC just completely threw that concept out of the window. And a lot of what I do now revolves around this idea that if you really want to disrupt, if you want to do things differently, if you want to solve big problems, right, they're actually best done with small, nimble teams that have limited resources, right? That really need to figure shit out, you know, in, in creative ways. So if you, if you look at a lot of the big, great companies out there today, they all started small. They all had to hack their way and figure problems out in a creative manner and typically with very, very limited resources, right? And that's kind of what got me excited about startups and I decided that, okay, I'm, I'm going to just focus my life on the, on the startup ecosystem. Right. Thanks for sharing. I think what you just mentioned just now was interesting, right? I think NOC program mm-hmm. really teach us how to hustle and really think of, think yeah. out of the box, right? And really try other things that solve the same problem or a big problem. And I think that is really, really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your network, right? And your batch or even your seniors or juniors, yeah. right? So... Are there any like batchmates that you still connect to, you look up to and get advice from in the network? Yeah, I mean, there definitely are a few that I was closer to. Coincidentally, there's one I'm actually meeting tonight for drinks that I have not met, like, I think practically since we graduated. So like, yeah, I was messaging and it's like, wow, I'm super excited to, to meet up again, right? So the experiences with batchmates have varied over the years. And, you know, I always used to wonder, why is it that alumni groups don't come together very often? But 
the, the sad truth is, truth is that life gets in the way, right? And, you know, I do have some batchmates that I will reach out to when it comes to very specific help or support that I need on a product or tech level. And then I have some batchmates that I'll reach out to for more casual reasons. The, the honest truth is I, I really am not that entirely close to a lot of my batchmates. But a large chunk is also because the house that I was living in, right, mm. quite a few of them actually ended up moving overseas. You know, so just meeting up also was a challenge. The one thing that I really do cherish was also like the, so the house I was living with had mostly people from India. And it was a very, for me, it was very inspiring just learning about how they work, you know, how they live life they are there, what it took for them to come to, to Singapore, right? And, you know, when I, even when I came back to Singapore, right, getting integrated to that Indian ecosystem, right, free NOC was virtually impossible because I didn't know a lot of these people and, and they viewed me as a foreigner slash Singaporean, right? But post NOC, I think it felt like a family kind of environment. And uh, I think over the years, that has really shaped my, my relationship now with folks in India in some sense. Mm. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for sharing. So let's, let's kind of, you know, dive straight into once you come back from the program, mm. right from the Bay Area, share with us your whole entrepreneurship journey and probably investment journey as well a little bit, right? On, mm, on E27. How was day one like? Mm. Yeah. So coming back was a, was a, was a struggle like, naturally, right? But so for, for everyone's benefit also, right? Like E27 actually already existed when I came back. It was like a student community within NUS. And a lot of the seniors, I think maybe about two years senior than me, you know, uh, names like uh, Beyond Lee, who now runs MyFi, Justin Lee, who runs Pointstar, you know, Vinod Nair, who runs Money Spa, Royston Tay, who used to work at Sopim. Like a lot of very successful founders had all come together and say, hey, let's start this e community to kind of like continue the roots of like networking, thinking of ideas. The goal was that a student community within NUS targeted for people that wanted to be close to startup and, and tech. And then maybe ideally, folks would start companies through those networks. So the, the initial ideation for e was more community with more grassroots. And in the early days, in fact, just when I came back, NUS had started to do this uh, accelerator program called Garage. And that was one of the iGEM, for those of you old enough, who have been in the space long enough, right? There was this iGEM program that MBA did where they seeded capital to very early stage uh, accelerators, Garage was one of them, to do 50K checks into ideas, right? So this was all the way back in 07. So E27 was the company kind of like hired to run this program, right? So if I remember correctly, September 07 was kind of when the registration of the company was started. We, we call it Optimatic because uh, I think Justin liked the combination of Optimus Prime and Automatic, which is the WordPress uh, parent company. So yeah, we have all these little quotes. But the thing is this, when E27 was there, actually it was still in NLC. So when I came back, I was tasked to run like the on-campus launch party for Garage. And then over time, just got involved with activities. Right? It, it really, so, so in that, in that 07, 08 period, I was still in school, graduated in 09. And from 09 to 10, right? Uh, so 9, 10, 11, right? It was a mix of doing E27 activities. I actually worked for a few different startups, Little Lives, which is an edutech company, MiG33, which is a, a mobile social network. I even started a gaming company in that process. But through that, period of discovery of trying to figure out what I, I was going to do. I think the focus was always pulling me back to working with early stage companies, helping them grow, ecosystem building. And then that's when me and my now co-founder, Thaddeus, uh, we managed to find an angel investor. We decided, okay, can we you know, restructure and build E2A7 as a company? Yeah. So it, it took us a lot of effort you know, to convince all the other uh, shareholders who, who were involved at the early stage to kind of like just give us full reign to do this. And then we restructured the company, raised a very small amount of capital. 50K, if I remember correctly. So the official 
kind of company type of starting point was around 2012, where me and Tedis uh, ran it. But the community version of it was in 2007. Oh. So that's some like fun facts for the for the history standpoint. Yeah, indeed, it's fun fact. I personally came back from the Bay Area on 2012. So my program was full year 2011. So I came back 2012 yeah. and E27 was like roaring, right? You know, everybody's talking about, you know, startups, tech, E27 and events. You bring startups together, investors together, you connect them as well. And that was great, right? That's, that's, it's still great. And what yeah. are the latest, you know, yeah. up and coming things in the past few years or even this year? Mm-hmm. So actually, the initial inception of it, from the, or the initial you know program around the company, had a lot to do with events. And events are a good business, not very scalable, unfortunately. But in the course of the years, right, because from a cultural standpoint and even from a capability standpoint, right, we were very event centric, and I think that limited our our growth potential. Right? So I remember twenty eighteen and twenty nineteen, we were actually doing very well. And the goal was to actually launch a lot of investment-centric business opportunities in 2020, you know, with the fund, with syndicates and all of that, because that's kind of like where I also enjoy uh, a lot of the activities. But then COVID hit, right? And long story short, like I had a conversation with my co-founder that is, and I, and I told him, I said, hey, it's a really, really good opportunity for us to completely pivot and do all the more scalable product-centric activities that we've been talking about doing for so many years but just never got to do and if it doesn't work i mean it's a good way to just close out the company and move on right so we, we got to it right you know we had enough cash in the bank enough runway and, 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 and i guess enough energy right to to pivot the entire company so 2020 was tough right because it was the entire transition building new products pivoting all our activities to be more online focused more scalable but 2021 ended up being like our best year ever from the profitability from the revenue standpoint and suddenly, like, our model felt so much more scalable, right? With a small team, we were able to do so much more, way more than we were able to do with a team double the size from before. In 2022, the model has gotten even better, right? I think I, I shared uh, on LinkedIn recently that as of last month, we had already crossed uh, all our numbers for last year. So, you know, we, we're going to see probably a, a 40 50% growth upside for the company, right? So I think COVID, as much as it was painful and as much as the transition was done in a challenging environment, it was a necessary evil, right? And it worked out really, really well for us. You know, we were able to, to force ourselves to be more product-centric. We were able to tweak the culture of the organization to be more product-centric. But we were also able to shed off the parts of the business, right? That was actually dragging, that one was making money was actually dragging us down from our growth potential. Mm, yeah. Thanks for sharing. I really love how you really take the opportunity during the whole COVID break, I would say. It's quite a good break in a way, like from mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. activity event-based yearly or even quarterly or half yearly to a more product-centric where it's more scalable, right? And it's more profitable, yeah. uh, as you mentioned. And congrats on the upside. It's great yeah. news for sure, right? It's still September now, but you have really crossed the mark. Let's switch gears a little bit, right? To investing. So tell us a bit more. I know you are investing in a lot of startup companies, yeah. early stage. Yeah. Tell us a bit more about your investment principles and, and what are the common traits of the companies you invest in? Yeah. I've been investing for a while. I started investing in 2013. In fact, my very first investment, when I was looking to invest at that point in time, I thought about, should I invest in startup? Should I invest in the fund or, or what, right? And my very first investment was in Golden Ventures, right? Fund one. And I'm very thankful to Vinny and, and, uh, and uh, Jeffrey, right, for, for giving me that opportunity, even though it was a very small check, right? And the logic was that I'd rather invest in a fund, learn how things are done, and get a more diversified you know, access to companies than to invest in startups. And then subsequently, after learning, I did invest in a few startups in the early part of the year, but I also realized, like, like one of my board members, Nick, right, he always said, like, look, 
if you want to invest in an e-commerce startup, you've got to know at the back of your hand, right, what maybe uh, the, the gross margin or contribution margin for Amazon is. Well, and if you don't have these comparables in your head, if you don't understand, right, how the large companies are doing, how are you going to be able to translate that to startups? And I, I thought that was very valuable, right? So actually, then in 2015, all the way to 2018, right, uh, those few years, I started doing more public activities. And I looked at it from a full bucket standpoint, right? One, large founder-led companies. I'm a big believer of founder-led companies. And two, are much, much smaller companies that I believe, right, were at a sub $50 billion level that could grow to uh, $500 billion companies. So essentially the Tesla, the Atlassian, the, uh, and the trillions of the world. Right? And I was lucky, right, based on my privileged position in startups, I was able to say, okay, look, where are things going to be in the next five years? What are the type, what are the type of companies to invest in? You know? so, so Atlassian, Tesla, Twilio, even in the early days, Zoom, right? These were the kind of companies that I was looking at because it was a lot easier with the startup mindset to have a long-term optimistic view of where the world was going to be. And then in 2018, right, I came back to founders. And I applied that same okay, founder-centric logic to startups. And I think by then, right, my way of looking at investments has started to change. I started to realize that, look, if I was going to deploy capital in a high-risk environment, I would very much rather deploy into companies right, that are changing the world right, in a way that I think should be changed. It wasn't intentional, but I ended up actually investing in a lot of health tech companies. And then subsequently, food tech companies. I mean, looking back now, right, it was a bit logical because health tech companies were actually solving real problems. And a lot of the founders that I met right, were also solving problems that they had suffered through. So one example of a founder that I really like, his name is Ram. He runs a company called New York Street. And you know, for the longest time, right, he couldn't get his medical issues mm. settled with for Western medicine. And he went through the traditional uh, Indian medicine route, right? Ayurveda, right? And he basically started a company that was an Ayurvedic tech platform with like 50,000 doctors to do their own vaccines and all that. And today they are getting it to be a, a post series A company. So invested in them back in, uh, in 2018, right? So like I started to form theses around, okay, health tech, food tech, areas that I felt, right, were solving problems in the world in, in primarily those two sectors. And then that has led me to invest in about 30 mm -hmm. over early stage mm -hmm. funds and startups in total. Of course, the large majority of them being uh, uh, startups. And here's the thing though, the challenge with investing in the 2018-2019 period versus the 2013 period was that suddenly, right, my 25k checks were not as valuable to founders as before. And what ended up happening was that I needed to, in order to get into a round, I needed to have like a minimum 50k or 100k ticket size. So I would ping a lot of my other friends, right, that wanted to invest and I said, hey, should we collectively invest under my name, right? And we are close enough friends that they will trust me. So I started doing SPVs and syndicates. I've got multiple Excel fees uh, with this. So that's basically what led to my investment side. And then uh, I met Milan, who's my current partner for Orwell. And we essentially started an early stage fund this year, uh, first post just happened, to, to really like look at early stage investing all over again, just like how it was like in, in 2012. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, right? Given the experience you have, right? To kind of start a fund yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, I really love how you, you know, invest in something that you really, really believe in. I think that's obvious, but it's still, I think there's still a shift of, this couple of years, especially I think maybe the whole COVID situation, investors tend to invest in something they really believe in in long term and solving big yeah. problems. Like you say, like food tech and health tech, right? But rather than just looking at like classic e-commerce, right? I mean, yep. I think that is a shift that I yep. see as well. I think that's very, really interesting. And, and to be fair, there's nothing wrong with those kind of startups and those kind of businesses, right? 
Like I, I think a lot of them have done tremendously well. I mean, mm. if you look at Shopback, for example, you know, phenomenal e-commerce business and done that really, really well and all that. But for me, the standpoint was like, look, if I have a small amount of capital and if I'm going to use it for from some way of use, you know, if returns is not the only priority, then how else can I think of a... Uh, you, you know, allocating capital to productive manners, right? Mm, true enough, true enough. Yeah, kind of, the, kind of double down on what you just mentioned on founder-led companies, right? Yes. Um, could you share with us what is the most important thing that makes a successful company? Is founder-led the biggest thing? I, and so I don't think founder-led is the ultimate thing, right? Like there are many companies that exist today that are, are, that are not founder-led and are doing extremely well. Right? I mean, Apple, Microsoft, just, just, just an example, right? I think in the in the early days, the you know founder-led organizations are, are really helpful because founders have that ability to look at vision over a long period of time. You know, they they understand what needs to be done to rally the company and put their fair times. And I think they're deeply vested enough in the problem, right, to want to see it through for as long as possible. You know, most organizations where the founders have transitioned to the non-founders, most good organizations, it's really, really because uh, you know, either founders have passed away profitably or have retired. Or they have decided to, you know, fulfill their life's mission to something much bigger. You know, in Bill Gates' case, is his philanthropic. So I, I really look at founder-led companies on the public equity side. But on the private equity side, right, I think it's really, especially in seed stage company law, you can do all your due diligence with respect to the gross margins of the financials, the market size, the temp sales and all that, right? But, but fundamentally, right, a, a good founder will figure things out, will, will pivot when necessary, will cut costs, you know, when, when needed, right? and is able to raise capital and rally the company towards them. I think, you know, ensuring that you are fundamentally investing in the right founders and they have the ability to fix the issues, which is very, very critical for early stage investments. Mm. Yeah, that's insightful. The question is, what are the key success, you know, indicators, right, for early stage companies to focus on to get their first round of funding? So given that there are a lot of founders, they are really looking at yeah. seed, seed round, right, or kind of yeah. pre-A, what are the key indicators they look at? So on the pre-A level, right, I think by then there should be some level of product market fit that others should have achieved. A particular company I, I like to give an example of is a company called Vedahalf.ai, India-based company. I, I invested in them in, the, in their pre-seed round. At that stage of the product, right, I would say that the founder has a certain thesis. He's having some early success with the thesis, but not full-blown yet. Like they're not able to scale and grow to the level where the users are coming in at a level where the, the team is having trouble scaling up. You know, the, the user growth is at a respectable level, but not completely, the, the hockey sticks hasn't come in, right? So early ideas of product market fit, but not fully there yet. Right? Second thing is also early ability to monetize. You know, the founders have started to, you know, try out certain monetization models, test certain segments of their user base with monetization. So it doesn't need to be full-fledged monetization, but more of tiny amounts, right? Where you have a hypothesis of how you can monetize and you have already tested it with your user base. So for me, in that seed level, right, founders should at least have a good idea of what that is or have, have done enough experiments to try it out and have some level of data and, and, and idea from that. Now, the goal for raising that round of funding right, is to get to the A level, right? Where at the A level, you should ideally be very, very clear what your product market fit is, how to scale and how to get things going. And at the A level is also when you raise capital to bring in some key starting aspects of your leadership team, right, that can help you bring the product to the next level. And I think by that time, right, the, the product's yep. growth capability, product market fit capability, and revenue generating capabilities have to be fairly clear. And to be fair, right, a lot of these are from a B2B perspective. 
I think B2C has a completely different approach and I, I've not really invested in B2C, so I can't really say. But from my B2B experience, I would say at the seed level, like what I mentioned earlier, right? Very early stages of PFS, very early stages of monetization, but founders need to have a very clear idea where to go from there. Mm, yeah, actually I was going to ask about B2B versus B2C, just like we mentioned, mm. right? So you can see that your appetite is towards B2B, right? Uh, compared to B2C, can you share with us and elaborate a little bit more on why though? Like B2C has like growth of, you know, consumer base and kind of tap on that and monetize. Yeah. But the B2B is a very clear kind of SaaS model and stuff like that. Yeah. I think for me, I find B2B companies a lot more easier to relate to and a lot more easier to, to understand the, the GTM, mm. right? With B2C, like, I mean, there are some amazing B2C companies out there. Chop, for example, although, although Chop also has a B2B angle, Kubo in Philippines, which has done uh, tremendously well. You know, Grab also started as a, as a, as a B2C company, right? I think for those, you know, the, the insight with respect to how the user behaves in the different markets are a whole different ballgame, right? That I personally cannot relate to and, and I'm, I'm not entirely uh, excited about. I would say better half maybe is the closest idea of a B2C company that I've invested in at some level. And fundamentally, they're like a Tinder, but for, for people that are serious about getting married. So in a lot of ways, yep, it is a B2C company. But the part that really got me excited, right, was the long-term aspect of like, how can they monetize with respect to working with partners around the entire you know, marriage life cycle, right? Which is a massive multi-billion dollar industry in India alone. The other thing is this also, like, comparatively speaking on a global level, there are a lot more B2B companies that you can make comparable to. Mm. M&A is also a, a lot more mm. straightforward. Whereas for B2C, right, I think M&A is a lot trickier. You also need a lot more capital, which I think is always a challenge in this region. A lot of varying factors as to why I prefer B2B as opposed to B2C. All right. Thanks for sharing. I think I definitely agree with you on B2B has a clearer track of monetization, obviously, given that it's B2B, mm. right? And B2C definitely takes a a long while, a bit long while to get traction and to get the whole consumer base. Mm. It's, a, it's a harder problem to solve generally. B2B, it's, it's mm -hmm. clearer if, if you get the partnerships right, right? Kind of shake the right hands and, and, and get the right contracts in, right? Yeah. Just kind of wrapping up a few a few more questions here, right? Just to uh, wrap up. So you have seen so many founders, right? Starting up, unsuccessful ones. What are the pitfalls of founders starting up? Oh, wow. Okay. I think the, I mean, in most cases, like if you're starting out for the wrong reasons, right, I think that's always the part that is uh, the big red flag. Right? I think when I speak to founders, right, I try to understand the pain points and the why they're starting the company. Right? With Neurofield, right, like I mentioned earlier, it really had to do with the fact that his own medical problems are not getting solved by Western medicine, and yet to use a traditional Indian medicine to, to solve it. So, so you know there's an extremely deep, like vested interest behind the problem, and it goes beyond just financial gain, right? You, you know, beyond for fight, right? Like he really, really started Manfai because of his, you know, work stress. That the, the, he talks about that episode of chest pain and that that really a uh, uh, negative experience he went through with respect to managing his own mental health. In the ups and downs of company building, right, you need to be driven by something that's larger than that money or, or personal gain or, or fame, right? There has to be a deeper mission, right, which with respect to why you want to dedicate your time and energy to the companies. Right. Even uh, there's this other founder that I really like, Justin from uh, Cliff. And his entire family is in the food tech, specifically vegetarian industry. Right? So for him, right, the cause is so much more beyond just him and his own uh, personal interests. It, it's like it's a personal mission for the entire family and it's also deeply embedded in the upbringing. So I think this is the first part, right? Like really understanding why founders are doing this. Is it just purely a market opportunity play? Is it a wish to become a, a founder? 
And so they found an interesting idea and they want to do it. Or do they have a deep enough passion and need over the top of solving? I think that's the very, very first part. The second part is also, I think, with respect to how they figure things out. I think for founders that, that get help from parents and family early on, right? I think there's completely nothing, nothing wrong with that, right? But I think it's always important to think about the fallback, right? So if you're not motivated enough, right, such that you know there's a golden cushion under your butt that you can fall back on very easily, I think that's also a, a, a bit of a challenge. But at the same time, right, like if you are doing this to escape like poverty and you are, let's say, really poor, right, that, such that if anything happens to your life, right, you, you have to quit the company, that's also an issue. So I think it's very important to have that balance for founders. You know, there has to be enough of a motivation for them to you know, dedicate their time and effort to, to this. But there shouldn't be in a, a, like uh, enough of like a lot of baggage in their life that might potentially drag them down in the process. And I think this is, you know, through the process of getting to know the founder, you know, understanding their background, their life, their family, and how they think to, to what they do, right, is a critical part of the investment process, right? And that's what makes seed capitals or seed investments sometimes so tricky. It's really about the person. If you gel well with the person and you're able to do a bit of duty on the person and, and it feels right, you know, then you can run with the investment, right? But it's very hard to describe that, right? And, and put that in a system or a process. And, and that's what can make things a bit tricky for us. So now that I'm, I'm running a fund, like uh, with my partners, it, it's very hard to apply that kind of methodology, right? Because when your LPs ask, oh, why do you invest in this company? You can't say that, oh, I thought the founder was really great and I drive the wave and identify with this, uh, with this vision. I think it has to be uh, a lot deeper than that, yeah. So building some structure around that investment thinking and process and distribution is, is really important over time. Yeah, I think I think you just you know also share the difference between angel investing and also investing through a fund, right? I think that's that's, that's definitely a huge huge difference. Um, cool. So beyond you know like food tech and health tech industries, any other new verticals industries you're looking at in the next say two years? New verticals and industries. So, so there are certain verticals that I'm excited about. I'm, I'm looking at companies to invest in, but I haven't entirely made investment in. So the first one is being is cybersecurity and, and privacy. Right? I think it's a hugely important you know, vertical in the region. I think from a government standpoint, there will be a lot more regulation and requirements around data protection in the region. And I think this is a good opportunity for Sarah to tap on that. So cybersecurity, privacy is one sector that I'm mm-hmm. definitely looking to get involved more, haven't done any investments there. The second area is in edutech. So I haven't done any investments in edutech, definitely looked at many, many deals in the space, but I'm currently just started advising one company in the space, India-based, but, but Southeast Asia focus. Mm. But I personally feel the education sector has a lot of uh, very interesting uh, uh, opportunities. There are business models that are that can also be, be tested, right? whether it's selling to schools, to parents, to, to governments or, or stuff like that. And there are also a lot of ways to go beyond just offering tuition type services or content type services. right? That industry could do with some level of disruption, but the go-to-market could be extremely challenging. Selling to schools right, it can be very difficult. So I think Edutech could be another potentially uh, super interesting area. I've looked a bit at consumer uh, sustainability. That's interesting. But also, I mean, we've, we've been exploring a few deals in that space, but haven't found anything, you know, particularly uh, exciting yet. Fintech always mm. is exciting, but it feels like every other company has a fintech strategy now. So as a vertical, I don't know if that's relevant anymore. But just on a high level, these are some of the areas that... I mean, and lastly, is climate, right? So, I mean, okay, that, that one is a space that's easy to throw, throw it out there that, oh, interested in climate tech. But I think... At some point, climate tech is going to become like crypto, right? Where you really need to be very deeply involved to understand the problems. Mm. 
So for that, right, I would personally invest in a fund as opposed to entirely investing in companies. But climate tech is another space that I think a lot more investors mm. really need to be getting involved in, need to be allocating capital in. The challenge is, I think, still the business model. So there are already some organizations that have shown decent business models. But at some point, I think if the reliance on the business models are purely from like government incentives or, or government-centric grants, that, that will make Indeed, growth indeed. very challenging. Yeah, thanks for sharing. Just a shout out to listeners, to your founder or entrepreneur in this space that Mohan just mentioned. You know, uh, feel free to hit Mohan an email or LinkedIn as well, right? So that he can uh, reach out. Yeah, yeah. LinkedIn will be the best way to get in front of me. I pretty much read things from one of the few folks who actually reads all my LinkedIn messages. But if I'm not able to help, I, I'm very happy to introduce people or, or connect founders to someone else that, that will be of help. So happy to do that. Awesome, awesome. Just last two questions, very short one. So, the second last one is what is one word or phrase you would describe your NOC experience? Oh, NOC experience, one word or phrase. Uh. I think, okay, so back years ago, right, I used to be a huge fan of the Porsche Cayman, right? S. I, I have no idea why, but, but looking back, like that was a big, I don't know. Uh, and, and they had a slogan, right? And, and, and they had a little like, like phrase, right? Which is to be true to yourself, right? And, and I think looking back for NOC, <laughs> like, you know, back when we were in NOC, right? And then when we came back to uni, right? And you can see, right, there'll always be one group of people that, you know, never went there to start a company. They just went there to pad their resume with the Stanford brand and the, and, and the Silicon Valley brand. And then you have another group that ended up joining banks and everything. And I think in the younger days, there was this perception of like, oh, these guys are disgraced the NOC program and all that, right? But like, I look back and, and this is where it will be true to yourself comes in. Or like when I think about it, right? Like everybody is on their own pathway and journey. Everybody needs to figure out the things in their own way, right? And if a pathway doesn't make sense for you, right? It is perfectly fine, right? Not not everyone is destined to be a founder. Not everyone is destined to, to work in a small company. Some people mm-hmm. just like the stability of big companies and problems and all that. So I, I think that learning to understand what is it that you're really good at, what kind of environment do you fit well, and just being true to yourself, not trying to put on a fake facade, right? Or fool you're not, fully not. It is something that I would really put my NOC, uh, if I could think through my NOC experience and all that, I will fully do that. I think building that empathy to understand, right, that everybody is on their own course, something that took me you know, many years to, to realize and, and build. But I think the, com- the starting point was really uh, NOC in that sense. You know, that was the first time I started getting involved with that phrase. That was the first time that phrase had some meaning to me. And when I, when I look back now, right, I think that particular phrase was very, very important. So there's no need to be judgmental to the past people take. You know, there's no need to be judgmental to the, the things people do to, to live their life, right? And I think everybody just needs to follow their own path and be really true to themselves and, and try not to you know, be someone they're truly not. Yeah, being true to themselves. I think that is uh, well said, uh, Mohan. And to wrap up this episode, what is one piece of advice you'd like to give to our listeners here who might be founders, hustlers, yeah. solving huge problems out there? Mm-hmm. I, I think it's really important to you know map out a plan, right? And then, and then work backwards from there. Right? So I think something that I wish I had done well in my younger days is is to have clarity on how my quarter or my year is going to look like. And I think the same thing applies for founders, right? Especially since if you're an early stage company, you typically have a 12 to 18 month runway. So you have a very clear deadline, right? And, and I think just learning to look at, okay, where do I need to be in 12 months time? Break that into quarters and then break that into weeks, right? And then you realize that, look, you have 13 weeks in a, in a quarter and 52 weeks in a year. And you can very, very clearly map out, right? Every milestone that you need to get done, right? Whether it's a personal, physical, relationship, health, exercise or whatever, and work backwards. And once you start to realize, right? If you want to run a marathon at the end of the year, of course, you need to work backwards. Or maybe not end of the year because that will be a bit too low. But let's say June next year, right? 
you very logically have to work backwards into this uh, process of breaking it down into quarters and weeks and then like do micro actions to work towards that goal. I think that, that part, right, like it, I, I feel that it applies a lot to startups because for most startups, you need to know where you need to be 12 months or 18 months for your next round of funding mm-hmm. or your next milestone uh, that you need to do, right? And having clarity of that is, is super critical. But apply that to your own personal life too, right? whether is it health, whether is it relationships, whether is it uh, personal development, right? Uh, uh, from the courses you want to take, the hobbies or skills you want to develop, the books you want to read, or, or, or generally just the things you want to do, even finance, right? Yeah. So I think I think that kind of uh, planned, structured mindset mm-hmm. thinking, I would definitely advise founders to think about and, uh, and uh, try to inculcate into the digital world. That's very, very holistic advice to have a clear vision, strategy, and, and tactics to all parts of your life. And, and back to your point that mm-hmm. everybody's unique and everybody have a journey of self-discovery Thank you, thank you, Mohan, for your time for this episode for, to share your advice and your insights and your experience uh, with investment, with the NOC experience and E27. Thank you, Mohan. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Ali. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Your Grits Story Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends. Chase your dreams, live out your passion and discover your grit story.